Okay. Welcome to the Librarian is in the New York Public Library podcast about books, culture, thumbs up, and money. <laughs> Chrissy is trying to help me. And what to read next? And, oh, and what to read next? <laughs> Our canned intro. Um, I'm Crystal. I'm Frank. Well, they're good. I took a took a load off. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't great. have to do the intro. The intro. <laughs> we can do whatever we want. We don't have to stick to that. I guess we we um just do it out of habit. <laughs> Every time I say that, I'm always like, do we talk enough about culture? Do really do people really want to read these books next? But you know, you just toss it in there. I guess when culture is just we talk about what's going on in our lives or library lives and um you know stuff we're watching doing mm -hmm. experiencing so that's culture it's broad it's a broad topic yeah i feel like the it's books will bring up things that are happening in society we talk about that for sure i mean i've always said and love that in the book discussion group i do with the library when a lot of people don't like the book or the book is sort of like generally not appreciated for some reason it's usually one of the best conversations because it it brings up nuts why we we didn't well yeah i guess that's part of it why one didn't like in quotes it but the issues and subject matter of that book and maybe how it wasn't successful in getting that across to the reader and often people change their tune well we did um we did uh Nabokov, the Speak Memory memoir in the book mm -hmm. discussion group. There were some people who were like, I don't like him. Oh, okay. Before um, that they didn't like him. They thought he was a narcissist. Yeah. And this fat person told me later after the discussion that she had changed her opinion. Oh, okay. And somebody... Um, Somebody came into the discussion and was like, can we, like a little late to the discussion, can we talk about this person, Nabokov, who wrote a book about pedophilia, reading Lolita? Mm -hmm. And I was like, nope. We read Speak Memory. <laughs> if, you got, if you got something from Speak Memory, then mm -hmm. speak to that. That's what you should bring up. But we're sticking to the text. And then I also said to this person, did you read Lolita? And she was like, no. <laughs> I was like, you got to read it before you start getting upset about it. Mm -hmm. That book is sort of on my list. We talked about this the last time. I, I like that you set boundaries for the book discussion because I can well, see how it can very quickly get derailed on other topics. I mean... That's what happens for us all the time. <laughs> right. I mean, I've gotten better. Mm -hmm. The classic style of book discussion is keeping a pretty tight rein on it and letting mm -hmm. everyone speak. And as you can imagine, sometimes... Mm -hmm. Well... I talk a lot, but that, that point, I just wanted to nip right away. I also, mm -hmm. I knew that patron, but I said, we can't get turned by that issue. Plus mm -hmm. it, it makes me mad if they have, if they start expounding, but haven't read. Yeah. The they should read it first for sure. And but another person in the group was like, read it. You'll, you'll have a different opinion. And I was mm -hmm. like, thank you. Yeah. I'm not as, I'm better than I used to be, but I'm not that tightly controlled in the, in the discussion, sometimes what I'll say, like in that one, I'll I'll say at the end of the discussion, we can have a free for all and gossip about like Nabokov's life. Mm 
mm-hmm. and other things if you want to like because but i don't like to bring in other things other than the actual text we read like articles they've read you know biographies other books it, it happens a little bit but for the most part it's like stick to what we the text because everyone is sharing mm-hmm. you know not everyone read that article or that other book mm-hmm. and so that's the biggest rule really that i have for book discussion groups mm-hmm. i also know this too with book clubs or book discussions it's not necessarily the most well-written book that does well in terms of conversation there are certain books i think like just spark a lot of i don't want to say controversy but a lot of discussion and i'm i'm thinking about like the book that i talked about previously vladimir by i think julia may jones even though that book is not I think it's a well-written book, although there are some flaws in it. I think it's a great, like, book discussion book because there's so many questions that, like, the book raises um, that you almost want to talk with someone about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, you know, what the heck is well-written? Jeez. That's a good question. Or the idea of what is literary merit? Because I think it means such different things for different people. For sure. Like I used to get, (laughs) sounds like I'm always feisty in the book discussion group, which isn't always the case. Well, maybe it is. But when somebody would say, my mother used to say this, maybe that's what it's tapping into. And someone would say, the book was very real, Mm -hmm. like real life. Mm -hmm. And that was like a compliment and almost like that was enough to say. And I, I would always be like, what do you mean by that? Like, what does that mean? And I guess like it hit to her. Very, mm-hmm. Yeah. It hit them very truly, but I just want to, you know, push, push the, our language capability, you know, mm-hmm. and just try to describe it further. Like what that really means. Actually, that sort of relates to, <laughs> to what we're talking about today that, at some point getting ready for this discussion of like, I'm always pushing that way and pushing in terms of like, I was saying, you know, better language gives you the better opportunity to describe your experience mm-hmm. and what you might mean. But, you know, sometimes there seems to be limits. Like sometimes you just can't, push anymore or you don't know what direction to go. I don't know really what I'm talking about. I'm just, well, I guess we could talk about what we've read, which is the bizarre thing you imposed on us last time. No, 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 no. You're trying to change the narrative. I believe. That's another I believe this was your idea. What? Yes. I did not know. I mentioned a book <laughs> and you were like, let's do this as a Spice Girls theme. You mentioned Spice Girls. And I right. said, that's a great idea. So I just validated you. Um, maybe you're right, but I wasn't serious. But then you went off with it, which is, I agreed to, of course. I mean, I thought it was cool. So which Picking Spice book, Girl, which Spice did you well, choose? So pick the thing, the assignment that we developed together <laughs> was to pick a book related to one of the Spice Girls. Like either it's Osh, Sporty, Scary, Baby, or Jim. Spice, yes. Or Pumpkin. But Frank, this is, honestly, it's neither of our fault. It's really Chrissy's fault because she didn't rein us in. She should have stopped us. Nip That's this in the producer. bud. It's a good producer. She lets us fly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there was a brief period when... Ginger Spice was also called Sexy Spice. Oh, really? 
I mean, I, it, well, I was thinking a lot about the Spice Girls. I mean, I was like already 30s, in my early 30s when they came out. So I wasn't like a teeny bopper. But yet they had an impact. You know, half jokey, but half like responding to a serious pop music goodness. You know, the songs were really good. Mm-hmm. Great pop music. And they were like a worldwide phenom and it was sort of fun. And But it must have been much different maybe for someone like you who was a kid at the time. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Do you have Spice yeah, Girls? I, I mean, the only thing I really remember is the Spice World movie. <laughs> right. Which I remember was- enjoying that. Did you see it in a theater? No, I don't think so. I think I must have seen it as a movie like after the fact. So you don't remember their music on the radio or anything? I don't think so. Maybe. So do you have a... No, no, I do remember. They used to play, um, when, was it the song, When Two Become One? Is that one of the songs? Yeah. I do oh, remember yeah. hearing that on the radio, yes. Do you remember the video? Which so one? Good. Two Become One. Mm, maybe not. To become one, I need someone like I never needed love before. Oh, I do remember. I just looked it up. Yeah, yes. baby, had a little love. Now I'm back for more. Wanna make love to you, baby? Set your spirit free. It's the only way to be. I guess I did like them. I don't think I bought a record or anything, but they were just everywhere. And I think I had. MTV or music channel at the time. Mm-hmm. So I saw it before work. I remember watching those videos. The glamour. I think the glamour I, of it all. I think I got more into Spice Girls when they did their individual careers, um, particularly Mel C, which was right. Sporty Spice. And she had kind of like sort of like dance electronica type yeah. music, I want to say. And then Emma Button did her kind of, I don't know, had like a 1960s vibe or something, um, her her album. And I enjoyed that. And I think those were more familiar to me. But I mean, you when I mentioned it last time, you picked it up and ran with it. So obviously culture, culturally, even if you weren't like oh yeah i watched it mm-hmm. videos i heard the music i bought the records you they you were aware of them as a phenomenon mm-hmm. <laughs> right what do you, you do? see pablo's tail oh it's lashing because i think he sees a bird outside and he is not happy she's taking i'm talking about the spice girls and she's taking a picture of the cats i'm sorry he's being really cute though he's being adorable I'm what was so which spice girl did you select well i mean all right i read two books um, one I was, was more like in the, I was, my justification was it wasn't quite posh, sporty, scary, whatever. It was just more girl power esque. Mm-hmm. And there was serious, again, the word literary discussion of, of being a woman. And then I, it was a short book, less than a hundred pages. So I flipped through it and then I got my hold, which is sporty, spicy. Oh, you got it. Oh. <laughs> Melanie C., My Life as a Spice Girl, the sporty Uh one. So I read that book. So I read both. Mm -hmm. uh, And they were interesting. So I actually just went right to the source, very literal, and read Sporty Spice's autobiog memoir. Mm -hmm. And no uh, arguments there. And the other book was called 
A Woman's Battles and Transformations by Edouard Louis. Okay. And, well, does this type cover of Edouard Louis remind you of anything? Or does, what is it? What is it? I don't know. What vibe do you get? Like 1970s-ish kind of fonts, right? Exactly. Crystal, you're a genius. I I know the fonts. Well, you're (laughs) true. I mean, this book. Uh Uh-huh. Just to breathe, just to, it might weave in, but um, A Woman's Battles and Transformations by Edward Louis. Edward Louis wrote The End of Eddie, which mm-hmm. is a fictionalized account, or at least it was published as fiction, um, very autobiographical of him growing up in rural or working class France and the brutal uh, upbringing he had as a gay kid in the 90s, really. Well, he's only like 30 now, so even early 2000s. Um, and it was a sort of a worldwide literary sensation. And um, he wrote that. And then he wrote a book about his father. And then this book, really, A Woman's Battles and Transformations, is about his mother. Um, and when I saw it, and it didn't really register right away, but then I started reading it. And it did remind me of all those books I used to see in the drugstore on the paperback rack with that 70s font as a kid in the 70s mm-hmm. on women's, like the second wave feminism books. Mm-hmm. And I would also look for books to give my mother for like holidays or birthdays or something in the drugstore that was the place that they were. I remember I bought her Leave Ullman's memoir called Changing. Leave Ullman's an actress. And it was sort of like that 70s font with like, with like a sort of misty, woman's face like this mm-hmm. book has on the cover, which is his actual mother. But you picked up right away on that 70s font. And I I just felt like somebody in the publishing house or him sort of did intentionally relate this book to that sort of book that was very pro- popular and predominant at the time. Like Jermaine Greer, The Female Eunuch. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can't say um, about being a woman and becoming your own person, I think. My mother read all those books. She was like desperate to, to be better. Um, and this book just did remind me of that. And then I looked at the font and I was like, there's a definite ch- link here. Mm-hmm. So, it, I mean, it, you know, it's much more of a, since it's not his life, like his other book, End of Eddie, it's more of his observations of his mother. I mean, it's cataloged in um, memoir in the library, but I've heard some sources even call it fiction just because he publishes it as fiction, but yet it's extremely autobiographical, biographical. Um, his mom, you know, the, the classic so-called story of the mom um, in this working class environment, having a kid at 18, hopes and dreams deferred because of the kids really, and then having more kids and the dad, you know, being a, working in the factory and being, you know, not abusive uh, physically per se, but like, you know, that dynamic that can engender that is, well, he, I mean, he explicitly calls it out. Edward Louis says like, you know, the, his mother failed in life because of extreme masculinity and capitalism and that she was trapped early on in this and couldn't get out. Like she had dreams of being a chef, but then had the kid which is sort of like, you know, takes two for that, right? But, you know, his story is that 
this happened. And then, then the dad was just like, you're staying home. You're taking care of the house. I provide for the family like these. And it was sort of like, you know, talk about the seventies, like reading all these books in the seventies. And this is 30 years later. And it's still repeating, you know, Edward Louis writing about his childhood in the early two thousands. And it's like, sometimes I wonder what activists from the seventies and sixties think when they see the same themes repeating themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, what did, I guess, what did I expect that the world would change and that this story would not be told again. But yet when you're reading it, I mean, Edward Louis is young. So he's writing, you know, as if it's, and it's writing about his own family. So it's very um, integral to him. But I'm like, we read these stories in college 30 years ago, like about women trying to get out of this rut or get out of this, you know, uh, societal imposed situation. And it's like, huh, is it going to change? Will it change? Why isn't it changing? Has it changed? Um, And all uh, lots of questions. So anyway, that's really what the book is that this small book, uh, a woman's battles and transformations is about. And, um, Sporty Spice. <clears throat> it's interesting because we talked, you said about narrative, like we joke about like, don't change my narrative or don't like, you know, it's interesting like what narratives are popular. I'm Cause like a Sporty Spice, who I always loved as the, my favorite spice really. Um, it just was more interesting than this sort of standard issue like cleavage and bubble gum. Mm-hmm. Um, pop presentation she was like track suits and like athletic high ponytail and you know but still big, the midriff big the the midriff the like yeah you got this get the sex in there somewhere mm-hmm. um so like how uh so that said how the the narratives of telling one story uh, um are in are are they culturally uh defined are they personally defined i mean because her narrative is similar in that she was a working class um, northern Liverpool. She wasn't from the northern England from near Liverpool, working class, um, but parents who were interested in the arts. And you could say the same narrative from that kind of um, perspective. And like, what are her challenges? Could she get out, like getting out of your cultural situation? through through ambition through desire to be something else who knows um you know she didn't get pregnant she didn't even talk about significant relationships at that period she was just very much focused on getting out of or not getting out but because she also said she had a very loving family this is not the narrative that says she was an abusive horrible household she makes she makes it clear that her sporty space is always like the diplomatic one too like you know she 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 does come off on brand, as they mm-hmm. say. She's like says several times, I want to make it clear I felt loved and I was loved as a kid. She just had a burning ambition to be a star, a center stage pop star. And pop star was was what it was. She was a dancer and then became a, more of a singer, but then originally went into dance. So and then we all know the story from there, I guess. But like the narrative of what's the story. Because of course, in a, in a in a memoir, you have to have like a challenge at some point, and hers is an eating disorder. So you talked about the midriff. I didn't know that actually. Yeah, so she talks about that because somebody had called her like chubby at one point, or said something referred to her body at some point, and she just didn't forget it, and then became 
as the Spice Girls fame grew, more obsessed with maintaining that. Um, it's funny when we forget, like, you know, when we look back nostalgically, like it's the Spice Girls or something, like how they're feel, how they made us feel uh, is the thing that lasts. But like at the time, which is always and forever, it seems the the press was also as it is now, or the media, whatever, like which is different landscape media, but can be brutal to uh, celebrities, you know, because that's mm-hmm. sort of like the clickbait now and the magazine buying impetus then because you know she there were all these narratives spun about her like i remember there was that rumor she's a lesbian mm-hmm. like 41 like mm-hmm. and then her weight was watched and she was also considered like the plain spice like the not not as pretty as the other girls spice and blah 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 i mean but she, you know it, it, she brings that back up again because obviously it makes an impact to her Mm-hmm. But the rest of us just consume like tabloid stuff and move on. Does she talk about it as like her individual experience with that, or were the other Spice Girls like going through similar struggles, or maybe she didn't mention it? I mean, like I said, she's very diplomatic. She mm-hmm. doesn't put words in their mouths. She doesn't does not talk about their press or their struggles. I mean, I think she's like, well, they'll write their own book. Mm-hmm. But she does universalize in some ways where she's she makes it clear that she doesn't feel like she's the only one that went through mm-hmm. that other people have, other pop stars have, other people before and after her have struggled with the same issues, which is like a very friendly thing to do when you're reading it. You don't feel like she's like so self-centered that it's like me, me, me. Mm-hmm. She's very aware and makes it clear that, you know, other people struggle with this. I mean, like it's, it, it's one of those books where she, it's said explicitly, like, I hope this book can help someone, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's the narrative. So like, and then the other thing that pops up is like, when you read these, which I do, as I've said before, I like to read these memoirs of like fame achieved, like glamor lives come to fruition often or almost always at the peak of their fame, when the audience, us is sort of just loving them and being like, wow, what a, glorious song and dance and life they must have. These memoirs always say how when they're at that peak, they're always so unhappy mm-hmm. because they're living. I mean, it's maybe the narrative that's part of the narrative, but it's also um, that thing of when you're in your life, you know, it's different from what you're presenting. Like, you know, you get up and go mm-hmm. to work and everyone thinks you're fine, but you're struggling with something inside because you're still just being like mm-hmm. fucking crystal. But like, you know, going and performing on a world stage when she's like dealing with a eating disorder or bad relationship or, or is exhausted, like from traveling and because they travel so much and, and it's, but yet looks sparkly and happy yet in reality, she's not remembering it that way. And that seems to be such a truism of memoirs about this. Like, you know, when I was at the peak of my fame, I was also at the lowest depths of misery. Well, even says at one point, like I should have been on a high, but I was hitting yeah. the bottom. Is it like when you get to that topmost peak of fame or success, you have so much more to lose. So if you, you yeah. there's like more pressures, more deadlines. Right. Pressure. Mm-hmm. I think that's the word. It's like, when we're watching it as an audience, we're just watching like confection and happiness <laughs> and, you know. We're being entertained, yes. <laughs> living their life, doing their thing, you know? <laughs> so, so it was how, a likable book for sure. How much of the memoir do you feel like was 
like revisionist history or do you feel like she was very honest in it? I mean, I don't know. Who knows? How would I know? I wasn't even there. I mean, I... As a scholar of Spice Girls. Well, as a scholar of Spice Girls, not really a scholar, maybe a master's degree as opposed to <laughs> PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, she's very, again, phrase I don't like, but whatever, on brand in that mm-hmm. she's just what you sort of expect her to be or what she's always been. And and she also says, like, being called Sporty Spice was, like, right on. Mm. Like, this nickname that was given to them. Um, she's very, she, she's, cause in the interviews I've seen, she has that great Northern England accent and mm-hmm. uh, Liverpool, Liverpudlian scouse accent. And she's always been like wide eyed and a little like, yes, and grateful and, you mm-hmm. know, get into crazy controversies or dramas or call out people and stuff. I mean, she has an edge in there like we all do, but when the book is very much like make no mistake, Spice Girls gave me everything and I loved every, mm-hmm. I loved it so much. And I love the girls. And we, of course we've had our problems, but we're friends. Mm-hmm. And so the, the story is very much what you want it to be that like, of course we had our ups and downs for human, but like, I love those girls. They'll, they'll always be the ones that know what we went mm-hmm. through. And when she talks about the, the bad times, she's always like, please don't forget that I am grateful for being a part of this band and that I became a star because of it. It gave me everything I really wanted. And, so she does walk that line of like self-effacing, um, but sort of like, you know, here's the ups and downs of it. Mm-hmm. Very self-effacing and like, you know, not going to like, you know, be a diva. But still like it's, it sounds like from what you're saying, it's still a little bit of her persona and not maybe the real person. I think so. I mean, I I mean, yeah, because the book is, it goes down easy and it's a pleasure, you know, like a fun mm-hmm. read to read because it, it doesn't really rock the boat that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess sort of, you, I think you're right. You just dug a little bit deeper, which I like. I don't think, I mean, of course, this, see, there's so-called tent poles of reality, like her eating disorder and mm-hmm. her parents divorced. And so there's like these issues that come up that are obviously we all know are emotionally, can be emotionally upsetting, mm-hmm. but it really is in the sort of framework of you're, you're not getting a blood and guts, yeah, you know, really visceral writing here. Maybe what we would call literary. Um, uh, it's very much in the narrative of like the, the, I was famous, struggled with this, got over it. And now I'm great mm-hmm. narrative, which, is very is a genre like I've talked about. That was my cozy read, reading books like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you, I think it, good point because it's like without insulting her, it's just you know, I, it's definitely not revealing her. I mean, I don't. I, she even can't believe that she's revealed mm-hmm. herself to the depths of her soul because it's you know following this very much of memoir narrative while being true. But, you know, like, I feel like the realist books, or which are so rare, I can't, is when people really delve into their own culpability. Mm-hmm. She even has, like, moments which I pick up on where she'll be, like, in a sentence, so to say, like, yeah, the Spice Girls that year were a little bit diva. We were a little bit diva because we were feeling our fame and had money for the first time because they were all, like, working class girls. Um, and we were could have been a little bit outrageous and... and um, out of control and then she goes on so it's like what was that then really like what were the moments where you were a yeah. deep 
people might have hated you or been like, you're a terrible person or stuff like that. But a lot of stuff like that she she throws away as a, as a, a joke, which in itself is comforting. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, she's acknowledging that, you know, they were on top of the world at 21 um, and might have been a little bit frisky. Mm-hmm. That's the Spice Girls for you. Always shaking it up. Tell us what to do and we'll do the opposite kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, good point. And to be fair, I guess like, for her compared to maybe other people in similar positions, she's been a uh, so-called spice girl for a long, long time, like yeah. the majority of her life. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to disentangle that. I imagine. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what it is about celebrities that sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. I guess love them. I guess following narratives we want to, I mean, they're really like when you look at the tabloids or tabloid, um, sites or magazines it's like you really are fo- following a soap opera I once posted like on Instagram um, a cover of a magazine from the 50s and a cover of the magazine from the 2000s like mm-hmm. one with Marilyn Monroe one with Jennifer Aniston and it was like the same headline mm-hmm. you know um, shocking divorce details for Marilyn and then shocking mm-hmm. divorce details for Jen Aniston mm-hmm. like, the same stories are told over and over with different figures and I mean that's why I think celebrities will complain like it's not true they make things up it's like they are sort of spinning stories in the press using mm-hmm. real people as their their stars and they these little mini dramas you know lying pushing the boundaries of what is true staying in the realm of truth but like making stuff up mm-hmm. and then you read it you think like oh and when they and like she does sporty does complain about that because she talks a lot about the press and how they treated them it sort of seems like from an outsider, like, oh, well, I forgot about that. But like she did, like, you know, it was her life because she's a person and reading this stuff like, I mean, I don't know. But then you think about the people, the celebrities that don't write books. Mm-hmm. There's a reason I guess they write books. Either they might want money, but or they also might want to just have more attention in a good way. Just like, mm-hmm. you know, here's my star life. I, I want to talk about it. Um, I wonder what the narrative would be for the people who have no inclination to write books as they would be. Well, I couldn't put my life in a narrative of. I, I mean, because yeah, I'm trying to think about the kinds of memoirs that or celebrity memoirs I've encountered. And I feel like they generally fall into redemption stories, right? Like people who have kind of crashed and burned and are kind of coming back from that. And that's like the major source of conflict. However many years down the line, they were famous when they were young or Books more like the um, Mel C, Mariah ones, the success story, like tough childhood success stories. And I wonder if that one, there's a comfort in it because these people have reached a lot of fame and recognition. And I know like um, Mel C isn't American, but is that like American dream thing where I could be going through so much struggles and have a difficult childhood, but I'm able to reach the pinnacle of success like this person did. If you just work really hard, um, and maybe that's what they're selling us a little bit, you know? Yeah, for sure. But it, I mean, I feel like in a publishing meeting, <laughs> you know, the editors have to say, "Are right, where's the, uh, where's the struggle? Like, where's your, mm-hmm. where are we going to define the struggle? And it's like the eating disorder, you know, it has to always be something great. Right. right. It just be like, I had a great childhood and I became famous because my dad was like really rich and supported me. The Ariana Grande story or whatever. Oh. I don't know. I have no idea. Right. I mean, and it's always like, you know, everyone's like happy, happy. And then 
20 years later, like Britney Spears, it's like, here's the real story behind, behind mm-hmm. the or, you know, that's the narrative. Oh, yeah. It seems. I guess that's another aspect of it, the puncturing of the glamour, as you said. Yeah. And maybe that's also very fascinating. <laughs> well, I was thinking about that because I was thinking about modern celebrity, which really is like a hundred years old, like since silent movies. Yeah. But like older generations of stars, like I was trying to, th- and I was thinking of Nabokov too, like just would write about, if they wrote an autobiography, would write, they, the struggles they would write about would be external, much more external Mm-hmm. than internal, meaning like a star like Joan Crawford or something would write about like, you know, I was I was in a flop movie and let, let go for my contract, but mm. I worked hard and signed another one and then I won an Oscar. Okay. And then, but now memoirs would be like, I was on top of the world, but I had to face the fact that I was grappling mm. with anxiety and depression and an eating disorder. So it becomes like admitting, because what um, Joan Crawford's internal struggles were, mm-hmm. who knows? Or Betty Davis. Like, mm-hmm. oh, that, like, they don't, they didn't talk about that. They wouldn't have talked about their depression, or even maybe even had words for it, their anxiety, depression. Mm-hmm. It, or I fought the studios, my husband divorced me. I mean, it was more external situations rather than the internal journey. Well, like I think celebrity or the idea of celebrity has changed a lot over the years, right? Because the people that we see as celebrities, which is terrible, like TikTok influencers and Instagram, but certainly like the Kardashians, right? Like their celebrity comes from sharing every detail of their life, right? Like yeah. every single thing. And some of it is definitely manufactured versus what you were saying about like old Hollywood where you saw the presentation the exterior you didn't really see their internal or hear their internal minds or internal lives yeah i guess maybe it's social media we always blame social media yeah i know i mean like well mel c in the book says and it's pretty much true that they're the older stars might not have talked about it because it would have been too honest it would have been too open and like in the books of today or you know the celebrity of today they're like even when I was growing up in the early 2000s or 90s, like this is sort of what I said before, but do things ever change? Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't talked about. Like you didn't talk about your depression. You didn't talk about anxiety. There wasn't even words for it. Like Edouard Louis in, mm-hmm. in, in, in mem- the memoir of his mother would have, could almost have said she wouldn't have ta- thought about how she was unhappy. She just went on with it. So maybe the internal lives were unexamined until the 60s yeah. busted it up and then, changed that mm-hmm. story for people that you or, couldn't talk about your internal mm-hmm. journey or like maybe they were just i mean as annoying as our current day world sometimes is i do feel like it is more receptive to those kinds of challenges that people face right like people are much more open about like depression because they want to show other people that there is a way to get through it and all that kind of stuff so so I guess it's not a bad thing that people do share more now, um, even though it's annoying sometimes. <laughs> or it becomes a commodity. Like suffering yeah. becomes a commodity. Yeah, I um, can see that. Like the the Kardashians and they do those like those advertisements for psoriasis and other yeah. like pills and things like that. You're like, oh, this is too much. Yeah, too much. That's another spice. 
Is it? Much of something okay. is not enough. So I think we were of the same mind because I also chose Sporty Spice. <laughs> what? You read the book too? No, I did this book. Oh, she was your jumping. Oh, wow. Yes, and I can finish it. Sporty rules. It's like a 600-page book. I got a good halfway through it, and I was like, you know what? It's a holiday. I'm going to stop. Um, so the book I read was Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim oh. Thorpe by David Baranis. Do you know about Jim Thorpe? Path lit. Path lit? No, path lit by lightning. Path lit. Path. 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 <laughs> All right. By lightning, the, oh, the life of Jim Thorpe. Jim Thorpe was an athlete. Native American? Yes, a Native American. And I think the path lit by lightning is sort of a translation of his Native American name. Um. He, let's see, I have it written here. Watho Huck. So he's from the Sac and Fox Nation. Um, and that is a translation of his name, a path lit by lightning, or at least a translation that the author took. And I like was vaguely familiar with him through, there's like a, this Y book called Undefeated. Um, I've also seen like images of him circulating on like the internet, so especially one where he's shown wearing like two mismatched shoes because his cleats were like disappeared or taken before a game and he had to find some to wear. Um, and he is somebody who is this athlete who I thought he only played football, but in fact, he was good at like a lot of different sports. I think he did baseball, basketball. He won two Olympic gold medals. I think one for pentathlon, one for decathlon. So really like an all around um, American like sports star. But the parts that I read were kind of early on in his life. And one formative experience that he had was he did attend the, let me look up the exact name of it. Um, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, right? And I think it was founded by this guy named Richard Henry Pratt. And he is notable for this kind of terrible quotes, which you've probably heard, which was in quotes, um, kill the Indian, save the man, right? And so like all of these kids would come to the Carlisle School, um, all Native American, uh, they would have their hair like shaved um, and sometimes given different names like John Smith, right? And it was really trying to kill like their culture to have them assimilate and for this guy Pratt, he felt like this was the way for them to, like the only way for people to improve or these Native American students improve was to completely transform them, right? And take them away from the reservation schools um, and really kill their like identity. And in the school, I think there was some number of like, I think 180 students died, right? From disease, illnesses. There are speculations that it was even higher than that. Um, I think it was like one in five students perhaps that died from illnesses. Um, more the author posits because what they would do, what Pratt would do is when the kids were ill, they would be sent back to their home. So those stats wouldn't be counted as part of their like death counts um were they ill because they encountered the world at large where they were more insular before 
That one, it's unclear to me. I don't think this goes into it entirely, but it, it was some that had like um, illnesses. There was speculation that like one particular group of the Sioux nation like were just generally ill, which mm. seems reductive for sure. Huh. Um, so that's not entirely clear. And I mean, all that has to say, like the school was, in my opinion, not a great thing. Uh, there's a story in it how like Pratt's at the end of the first year, he asked the students to raise their hands if they wanted the school to continue. And I think all of the students raised their hands. And then the author kind of points out like, you know, this didn't really connect with um, the amount of times that students were also running away. So they were raising their hands here in front of all the administrators. Mm. But when they weren't in front of them, they were trying to run away to like go home and to go different places. Um, and I think to the administrators of the school saw like um, once a lot of the students graduated, they would return to their reservations. And they saw that as like a failure because they wanted them to like leave the reservations, I think, in another way of killing that, like, Native American identity. They talked about how, like, in certain classes or um, uh, wherever they were, like, living, they kind of made sure to separate a lot of people who were from, like, the same, like, nations or tribes. And so there would only be, like, one person who was Apache, one person who was Cherokee, you know. And I think they probably did that very intentionally as a way of kind of killing off, like, the, the culture and the identity. But, but go ahead. No, no. This so this was. I mean, uh, this guy started the school. Mm-hmm. Can how do I put this? Can can one say out of a benevolent perspective Hi, that the eraser? Well, because they were they certainly probably weren't talking about identity like we do now, mm-hmm. and that the idea of becoming white or white culture or predominant culture was a good thing. That was a good thing to do. In other words, assimilate rather than get different. I mean, different. I'm sure he had the perspective, Pratt's, he had the perspective that this was a very noble cause that he felt passionate about. But it's so steeped in racism, of course, right? Because the assimilation presumes that the culture that is being assimilated um, is... Uh, inferior, right? Being Native American is inferior and that white culture is a superior culture. So it was just like a super like racist idea. Like, I mean, like, I guess I'm grateful that he didn't kill them or want to like, I mean, it's it's like the, the very tiniest, you know, path of progress where it's wanting to kill an entire nation of people complete genocide and being like oh we won't kill them we'll just assimilate them but we'll kill their culture and um you i know. guess what i'm getting i mean getting at is the yeah. idea that assimilation was not a bad thing that and it wasn't just like white culture but it was like a culture that has proved their success let's say in the most general terms that mm-hmm. coming to america but yet uh, i mean he maybe thought I'm that just trying. Like, yeah 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 that, yeah i think perfect. that like they thought that they were doing a good thing. Yes, I I would agree with that. I think us looking back on that now, like, or or even people who were Native American looking at it then, where people were forcibly removed and stuff, um, it's it's terrible, you know? But I I believe that, yes. But that's what I meant. That's what I, the reason why I pushed to to find that is that 
that's what I mean by the narrative. Like if he thought he was doing good and that was the narrative, his narrative, and then it changes. Like when you're in a cultural moment, how trapped are we by that moment? Or can we think our way out of it? I mean, I think it's the, the ones we think of the most courageous, which may be Jim Thorpe, mm -hmm. um, are the ones that can think their way out of it rather than accept it as the narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure there were Indian or Native American kids who went to this school who spent their whole lives feeling that assimilation was the only way to go. Well, I will say the author does bring up, there were a couple of um, kids from the school who did like grow up and found success in different kinds of ways. Um, and they had not entirely negative feelings about the Carlisle school. They felt like it was a place where they were challenged and were able to meet that challenge. And ultimately it was good for them. And they had some fondness and I don't remember which one, not Thorpe, but somebody else who actually um, recruited people for the school as well. So there were different sides to yeah. it for sure. Um, but anyways, and so the, yeah. uh, further on in the book too, it also talks about like, um, what happens when Jim Thorpe, he gets the gold Olympic medals from, I think, Stockholm, 1912 or 1916, one of those years. And then later it comes out that he was technically not am an amateur athlete because in the summers, I believe that he played like minor baseball. Um, and he was very open about that, it seems. Like it was not something that he was hiding. It seemed like a lot of athletes typically did that. Um, but what was interesting in the book was that it, it seemed like it was something that Pop Warner, who was, I think, his coach, uh, football coach, um, Pratt and other administrators, they all kind of knew about it. But when it came out in a news story that, in fact, Jim Thorpe was not this amateur athlete, but was, in fact, had played professionally, um, they all really kind of distanced themselves from it and, like, did a lot of pearl clutching. Like, oh, I'm so shocked. What? I didn't know. Right. Even though they did know that this was something that was happening. Um and then ultimately his medals got revoked and taken away from him and given to whoever was like seconds in the decathlon. And even that person was like, I don't want these medals. Like they belong to Jim, you know? Um, and I think much later on, uh, some version of that was returned to him, I think after his death to his children. Mm. But I also think that was really interesting too. this. I mean, not to say that I, I totally understood because it started to get into like baseball stats and other things. I was like, oh God, this is a little <laughs> intense for me. But the the idea of this kind of tie-in of being an amateur and professional football player and sort of the, complex, the complicity of a lot of administrators, it did make me think a lot about like what we see and um, are experiencing in present day with like college athletics, right? Because... With college athletics, uh, my understanding of it is like it is its own huge kind of beast where lots of money are being made. And yet these students who are playing um, as amateurs cannot get paid because of these very strict rules about like amateur, amateur, you might even pronounce that yeah. word, right? Amateur and professional um 
sports. But meanwhile, there's so much money being pumped into it. And that money goes to like the coaches, to the administrators, and they're not going to the actual students whose labor that this is kind of built on and how like that has a lot of interesting, um, I'll say like, societal implications too when you think about like the the ethnic demographics of a lot of the players versus like the coaches and the administrators and how like money gets allocated um so i just found that to be really interesting because this was something that was like in the early 1900s and yet it's echoing a lot of the stuff that continues to happen today although i think some of the rules are maybe changing a little bit well i mean the same thing you know spice girls she talks about that like you know they became huge their managers Mm-hmm. millions and millions and millions of yes. dollars and they saw far less mm-hmm. like the actual people doing the labor the young people it's like it seems to be this mm-hmm. persistent truism that you know it, the young ambitious excitable people are exploited mm-hmm. and for, women for right in this case yeah. they're all women right yeah um but i mean the the land the pop culture landscape is riddled with with boys who were exploited as well. I mean, that whole true, thing. true, like young kids. Yeah, like boy bands. Maybe I don't know. I mean, like the NSYNC or I don't know some of the boy bands that came out later. Yes, crazy but bringing up NSYNC, right? You do see how like some of that is not always. I mean, the whole like Justin Timberlake and um, Janet Jackson Super Bowl yeah. thing, like yeah. how unfairly that comes. Like, I do agree that they are being there's exploitation happening everywhere for sure um but yeah. like well that double standard yeah I, I know that but that's again talk about persisting like i say you know these 70s books writing about women's rights and being very ferocious politically about it but then like a generation born 30 years later is going through the same things on a on a on a personal level, mm-hmm. you know, like you'd think that the feminists of the sixties and seventies writing about these experiences would preclude a Janet Jackson thing happening, mm-hmm. that she would suddenly be the problem of this scenario. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing is they both, well, that's not getting to that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Jim Thorpe. Yeah. I mean, this book, it's very detailed. I mean, I feel like I normally, very rarely read biographies. I tend to do memoirs or maybe I'll do like um, biographies that are more like journalistic. Um, This is a very detailed. I would definitely recommend it if you are a fan of Jim or of of like athletics in general. I do feel like I'm learning a lot in it. Yeah. Well, you brought up sporty. You brought up something sporty. But he's my understanding of him too is like his life was not um the easiest. I think he cycled right. through a few marriages. His mm-hmm. twin like died when he was, I think, nine or six due to some illness. His um three-year-old child also died. Um I think his first marriage dissolved because of like drinking and other issues. Um, so it's it, and plus the, the medals being taken away and then reinstated and things like that. So he didn't have like an easy life, but I think he was somebody who really persevered in a lot of ways. And I think what you talked about, um, how Melanie C, not, I feel like terrible to compare them in some ways, but like Melanie C, like using her talent and skills to get out of her situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was somebody who was this like really fantastic athlete and it got him really far in a lot of ways. What would you say then from what you read, 
because when you hear stories like this, sometimes you you want to question like, wait a minute, like if the native Amer if a Native American was technically without prospects or an oppressed group, as we would say, mm -hmm. how did he get from how did he get in to compete to begin with? Like, how did what do you, or what do you think that situation means? Because my impulse is to say, yeah, we don't want to have the minorities in our sports or in our mm -hmm. arenas, but it just that does it take for someone to say, oh, there's money there, and money trumps uh, trumps any uh, racism or prejudice. I mean, I, I will say, like really early on, the author, maybe in the opening chapter did a lot of interesting stuff in tying it into, I think Jim Thorpe's kind of tour, I want to say, like, is that what it's called? I don't know. When he, once he got famous, he was like invited to a lot of spaces, right? And the author did this interesting thing of tying it into however many decades prior, this warrior named Black Hawk that also like people took him on a tour post like being a prisoner of war or something. But then he also tied it into like Jim Crow and how um, during times of Jim Crow, like Jim Thorpe was allowed in spaces that like black Americans weren't allowed in. Um, I don't know exactly the answers to your questions, but I do think that there is this element of um, entertainment and maybe commodity of Native Americans and people of color, right? Where um, like they they would advertise him as like Jim, uh, so-called Jim Big Keith Thorpe. They would talk about, because he was on some league or some sports teams with other Native American um, athletes and they would advertise those teams as like purebreds in, in quotes or, um, and he, and Jim Thorpe, there is like white ancestry in him too. Like it's white and native American. Right. But the idea of this team being so-called purebred as um, invoking this idea of like, I don't know. I think they said like maybe dangerous right. or kind of noble savage or right. um, like exotic and, and that they're yeah. not like us because they have other weird powers that are spooky and like, you know, Yes, 100%. And amazing so I, I to do feel like there was a money aspect to it. And I think we still see that today, too, where um, I think the BIPOC experience or the Black, Indigenous, people of color experience is sometimes commodified for the entertainments of white people, you know, or for other other BIPOC maybe, too. Um, and I, I can see how that, like, allowed him to enter a lot of places that maybe he normally wouldn't as, like, if he was not a famous athlete, right? He may not have been welcomed in the same ways. Um, I was going to, this also just briefly reminded me, too, that... Mm when all that controversy went on about the medal, whether or not he was amateur or professional, uh, there was a letter that was written to, who was it written to? James E. Sullivan, secretary of the Amateur Athletic Union. And the author of this book, again, kind of suggests and has good um, arguments for suggesting that it was actually not written by Jim Thorpe, but was written by his coach, Pop Warner, but under Jim Thorpe's name. And in it, there is a line that said, um, 
I never realized until now what a big mistake I made by keeping it a secret about my ball playing, and I'm sorry I did so. I hope I will be partially excused by the fact that I was simply an Indian schoolboy and did not know all about such things. Um, in fact, I did not know what I was doing wrong because I was doing what I knew several other college men had done, except that they did not use their own names. And the author points out, like, you know, this is unlikely. It was written by Jim for all of these different reasons. One, that he it would have been unlikely that he would refer to himself that way because at the time I think he was like 26. But that phrase of I was simply an Indian schoolboy, um, the way that that kind of like emasculates him and the way that I think that's how a lot of Native Americans were like perceived, right? As like dumb, uneducated, needing to be taught um, so that they could be like, I don't know, full people or whatever. That was like the racism of that time, and I don't know. Yeah, and and now too, but I thought that was just like really interesting how like this guy seemingly forged a letter to argue on his behalf, but also just yeah. completely like insulted him too. I don't know. It seems like human, which persists, like human experience needs needs to have an, an other. Mm-hmm. It needs to be an other to sort of put fears and anxieties at two. Yeah. And then when that other, through struggle and fight, achieves a sense of mainstreamization, mm-hmm. mainstreamization, then someone else becomes the other. Um, it seems to, like just a survival thing, like, you know, recognizing if you if you're very different, like I, mean, I was always thinking that, like, why would like a kid be terrified of a snake when you've never seen a snake just because it looks so different and scary? They, I think, something like, biological, like we're, yeah. we're, we're sort of not not trained, but you know, biologically inclined to sort of recognize and be alarmed by an other until we feel it's safe. I don't know, like a. And I'm, I don't, I'm not, I'm not saying, I don't know what I'm, I'm, I'm not making, I'm not drilling down deeper than that. I'm just, just talking off the top of my head about, we do seem to be conscious of difference. I mean, I then, feel like, yeah, go yeah. ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say the snake thing. I was like, I feel like we learned that from our parents though. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think, do we? I think so. Like when your parents scream, cause there's a spider, you're taught that like, that's really scary. No, know. I want, I mean, I'm always. You think it's instinctual, like a baby? If you put a spider on a baby? With this thing we've been taught, you know, like books like we read, and certainly like I read, like, you know, well, we've been taught that women should blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's really where my stress comes from when I say, like, you know, I could read a Spice Girl the book and think women were taught to be. I'm like, yeah, but the generation before you was fighting hard about this, writing books yeah. about it. Why is it still persisting? Like, it, not saying that it's this is the way it is, but like it's like why does certain things persist generation mm-hmm. after generation? So that's yeah. what leads me to sometimes think, well, it's something part of our DNA artillery. Like what what like what is essentially human? And I definitely think, you know, we have to have some consciousness of how to be aware of danger, but yet humans are also completely vulnerable individuals from birth. Like we're not like we come out of the the womb and a day or two later can sort of function. Like we, it takes a long time for us to be on our own. Yeah. I don't know, but I, there has to be some things we're born with as part of a, a species. 
Um, I mean, I think there is maybe some aspect of like maybe early humans having to make very quick judgment calls on what they see and categorizing people, things, whatever the things around them very quickly make a judgment call. And I feel like that comes into play when we see a lot of like stereotypes that happen. Right. Mm -hmm. But I also think that like as humans in a society, you know, like if we just did what was natural, people would just be like using the bathroom on the street. Although in New York, that does happen. So never mind. But, you know, like there are things that we, I think have, I want to say like evolved beyond or like taught ourselves beyond so that we have like plumbing Mm -hmm. and bathrooms and things like that. Um, I do think that there is this aspect of like maybe our capitalistic economy that like influences how we think about things versus not, not to say I'm like communist or whatever, but like the idea of like socialism or whatever, where it's sort of like we are all paying a larger amount of taxes so that the most vulnerable in our society are cared for versus maybe an economy that's more capitalistic where, you know, in order for people to succeed, there have to be people who are like not succeeding. Um, and I do wonder how much of that drives a lot of our thinking and like separation of groups of people, um, communities of people. I don't know. I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of issues there. I mean, the tribalistic that we're tribalistic. I mean, oh, yeah. we war with other countries. It's like, you know, but the capitalism question is a good one. I mean, like, does it rely? Does capitalism rely on that sort of dynamic that there's someone that is always another and mm-hmm. other, and you need that sort of mm-hmm. equation to function in that society? Mm-hmm. The capitalism is, I mean, I'm I'm not an economist. I'm not good at economics or anything, but I do wonder about our capitalism uh, economy because it's so interesting how the government is constantly bailing out like corporations, but not people. Anyways, (laughs) I just have to get on my soapbox and get like really annoyed. I mean, there's so much. We'll save that for another time. All right, let's. Cut our losses. Why don't you yes. pick it out? We don't have Okay. To- so our next oh. book, Frank, we're gonna read yeah. The Anomaly. Bye. Hervé Letelier, another French author. Um who won the Prix Gancler, a French literary prize, a big the biggest. Oh, okay. Someone had recommended it to me in the library, actually, one of my book discussion people. So It's called The Anomaly by Hervé Letelier. And that's what Crystal and I are going to read for the next time. I'm also doing it for a book discussion group. So, Mm -hmm. Is your book discussion group going to happen after our recording or before? Uh, Yeah, usually it's a day later, actually. Okay. I'd be interested to hear what other people's responses are. I know. It's too bad it's not before, but Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. C'est la vie. C'est la vie. All right, honey. All right. See you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Librarian is In, a podcast by the New York Public Library. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, or send us an email at podcasts at nypl.org. For more information about the New York Public Library, please visit nypl.org. We are produced by Christine Farrell. Your hosts are Frank Hilarious and Crystal Chen.